0: Here's a quick reminder. Don't forget you have until November 26 to enter our Spark Joy giveaway. We'll announce our winners during our best of show
1: on December the 3rd. Head over to sparkjoypodcast.com forward slash reviews for instructions on how to leave a star rating and written review on iTunes. Then shoot an email to contact at sparkjoypodcast.com with your username for a chance to win one of six coveted Kamari-themed prizes that spark joy in celebration of our two-year anniversary. Thanks again for your support. Now it's time for the show.
0: Welcome to Spark Joy, the podcast dedicated to celebrating the Kamari method and the transformative power of surrounding yourself with joy and letting go of all the rest with your hosts and certified Kamari consultants, Kristen Ivey and Karen Sochi. And now, here's the show. Today's guest is Craig Sellinger. Craig Sellinger is a New York State licensed language therapist with over 16 years of experience working professionally in New York City. He's the founder and CEO of Temba Tutors. Their mission is to provide accessible tutoring and executive functioning coaching for all learners in their homes, schools, and
1: work environments. Welcome to Spark Joy, Craig.
2: Hi, everybody. I'm so happy to be here.
1: Thank you for joining us, Craig. I want to hear about your story and how you found this work to be your passion.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm from Long Island, Massapequa Park. So I was a day camp counselor, and then I was a sleepaway camp counselor. I went sleepaway camp in Great Parrington, Massachusetts. And I knew like, from a young age that I wanted to help people, but I didn't know exactly in what capacity. My mom, she was a, uh, a reading specialist in East New York, Brooklyn. So fast forward to high school, I was getting ready to apply to colleges. And at the time, I was shadowing a physical therapist, so I thought I wanted to be a physical therapist. But I did know that I was interested in the sciences. And then I went to University of Wisconsin, Madison. And from there, just like I just really lucked out. I took a a course that was like at 4 p.m., it was like great, like a late course. And it was called Introduction to Communicative Disorders. And it was really the kind of uh, the science of communication and language learning, and had some cognitive science thrown in there. And I had a great professor named Dr. Julia Evans, and it took off and I started working in her lab. Next thing you know, I was in grad school. I was getting my master's in speech language pathology. And while in grad school, there was some really interesting research that was going on where there were um, children that were born in Romania. And people don't uh, know the the history of Romania, but there was a brutal dictator. So, what happened in Romania was uh, there were a lot of the, the Romanian government was forcing a lot of parents to give up their kids, and their kids were going to these orphanages. And these kids were—I mean—severely neglected. I mean, neglected to the point where um, these kids were just left in cribs. They weren't stimulated. You know, even from a dietary perspective, I mean, they're probably just drinking milk. Then the Tchaikovsky, who was the dictator at the time, his regime ended, and then what happened was a lot of these loving Midwest families, they started adopting kids from Romania, and even with a lot of love, these kids were having a lot of uh, academic and psychological issues, and then University of Wisconsin got a grant and started doing some research on these kids just to kind of understand, you know, what's going on. So uh, I was part of that research, and I was doing some neuropsychological assessments on these kids. And then also in tandem, I was working in a neuropsychological lab under Dr. Seth Pollack And I was doing some brain research where it was really cool. I was hooking up, putting electrodes on kids' heads. These kids were not from Romania. Um, These were just local kids. And we were testing, we were assessing something called working memory, which is type of short-term memory. I was really excited. I was doing a lot of this cool cognitive neuroscience and helping doing research on these kids from Romania. Then also studying to be a speech-language therapist. So, you know, I was also like, I was just eating all this material up. And then from there, I moved back to uh, New York City, started working in Manhattan and Queens. And then over time, I I launched my own private practice called Brooklyn Letters. And then uh, a few years later, I I launched Temba Tutors um, because I just noticed that in the tutoring sector, there was a, a big need for the type of work that I do as a speech language therapist. We teach strategies how to help these students become optimal learners. And the idea is that by teaching these strategies, they become just better lifelong learners. Whether you know they they move on to college or they move on, you know, eventually to hopefully become a CEO of a company one day. But we kind of fill in a, a much needed gap where these kids are struggling with with specific skills. And what we're really doing is we're teaching these skill sets. They can adopt these skill sets and just become uh, better lifelong learners.
1: Wow, it's so cool how. It'll- A lot of the services you must offer are so research-based. I'm so glad that you had the chance to really prove the connections here. And I'm curious, like I have not really explored tutoring programs in quite some time. I would love to hear like a particular example of what type of services that Timba Tutors offers.
2: There's kind of corporate America where there are corporate America tutoring companies. And I'm not saying anything bad about them but it is a corporate structure and then there are tutoring companies that are more localized and that's what we do and then within the localized tutoring companies the way i perceive it is you know there's tutoring which you know when you think of tutoring you know you think of you know a tutor comes over you know you see look at the, you know the child needs help with certain content you help you know you teach the student the content you help them with their homework you help them prepare for tests what we do is more we look from a more holistic perspective but what I mean by that is, again, we, we mostly work with students that are struggling, parents that are struggling. So, you know, we're starting from a point where, you know, parents are getting frustrated and they really need help. And we come in. So it's not like we're at a starting point where families are buoy- brilliant and happy and excited. You know, we're starting from a level of frustration and we have to kind of come in and, you know, try to figure out like what needs to be done. So, you know, so number one, it's the assessment. You know, we're, we're looking at, when we're multidisciplinary, we work with a lot of local neuropsychologists where they do what's called the neuropsychological assessment, which is like a super comprehensive assessment where kids have um, go through days of testing and multiple batteries of testing. And these reports can literally be like 20 to 30 pages long where it really breaks down the student's profile. So we use that to really understand the child's learning, you know, their strengths and weaknesses and their personality. And then we also, you know, when we get to meet families, we get to learn about the family system. What's really neat, we go to the family's home. So we get to see what the kids' bedroom's like, what their backpacks like, the dynamics between, you know, students and their parents. You know, we get to see kids, you know, being kids, you know. And then we also see how kids approach homework, how they approach studying. So we get a real, like, organic, raw lens and then, you know, the idea is to give them practical strategies for how to become more optimal learners.
0: I think home organizers have had a lot of clients who either self-identify as having ADHD or at some point align the road they've been actually diagnosed with that. And then there's a lot of people who just really decided they are, you know, without sure. really having any clear understanding what that actually means, because it is it's a medical diagnosis. Could you kind of share with our listeners a little bit about what is meant by ADHD as a an issue specifically, and then also a little bit more about what you mean by executive functioning? Is that something that only people who are executives face, or is that something that is more widespread? Because those terms are so interesting, but I think they're very misunderstood.
2: They are. And and as you know, people like to go to Google, Right. So if you're, you know, whether you think you have ADHD or you're sick, you know, you go to Google, it's really hard to use Google as a resource to kind of self-diagnose, you know, what's going on. The starting point is, you know, finding the right professionals. So in terms of ADHD, you know, the, the best professionals out there, are they're called clinical neuropsychologists and there's, within the field of psychology, there's a branch called neuropsychology since the '90s, we've just learned a tremendous amount about the brain. and then um, neuropsychologists, you ideally use that research and they you have a, a variety of uh, test batteries where they ideally can figure out, the, you know what's the underlying issue if there is. So that's the, the best starting point. And then uh, aside from clinical neuropsychologists that, that assess ADHD, you know, there's also psychiatrists play a big role in terms of the medication. But you know, aside from clinical neuropsychologists, you have to be kind of careful. Like I had a friend; he was diagnosed with ADHD. He went to his doctor, and his pediatrician's, like, "Yes, you have ADHD," but there was no diagnostic test that that doctor you know performed. But, you know, medical doctors can do that. They, they have the right ethical right to diagnose ADHD and and it's a tricky disorder to diagnose. And that's why it's really important that you have a thorough assessment. Background history is so crucial. And so the parent play a big role in, in the oral history of the child, which is a important piece of the diagnosis. And the schools as well, the teachers get to know the child. So it's very comprehensive. It's not, uh, you know, an easy diagnosis to make. So that's one. And then two, you don't learn about in Google, and I'm telling you just from my training and working with hundreds of families, there's a lot of comorbidity where, you know, you read about things, everything seems clean cut, but there are a lot of kids that have ADHD and they also have something else as well. But according to the American Psychological Association, attention deficit hyperactive disorder is one of the most common mental disorders affecting children. ADHD also affects many adults. Symptoms of ADHD include inattention, which is not being able to keep focus, uh, hyperactivity, and impulsivity, and an estimated 8.4% of children and 2.5% of adults have ADHD. It is more common among boys than girls. And then what's also very important is symptoms must occur in multiple settings. So if someone is uh, exhibiting ADHD, for example, only in school, but nowhere else that doesn't actually define ADHD. They have to have these difficulties, you know, at home and at school.
0: Interesting. Sure. And so what about executive functioning? What, what is that exactly? And how does that show itself in the
2: world? Yeah. Executive functioning right now is like the hottest term. And, and even in the tutoring field, it's, it's super hot. So it's used a lot. One thing about executive functioning, it is not a medical diagnosis. It's more of a descriptive term. Executive functioning is a neuropsychological term that refers to a person's ability to activate or cue a neural system, which I'll explain later, to help him or her perform efficiently across a variety of functions. So uh, examples include um, how you initiate a task, how you follow through, how you sustain attention, your performance monitoring, inhibition of impulses, and sticking with goals. So if you think about fighter pilots, Fighter pilots have to have really good executive functioning skills because what they're doing is they're masters at multitasking. They have to attend direction, altitude, wind speed, position of the wingspan, fuel levels, weapon systems, mission communications while making tactical decisions and streaking across the sky at high speeds. Think of it, executive functioning where there's a lot happening and your brain is processing a lot of information and making these decisions. And executive functioning is very applicable to academics because particularly as students start entering middle school and high school, the executive functioning demands increase. And that's where students start struggling. A lot of these students have executive functioning difficulties, but you can have executive functioning difficulties and not have ADHD.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay. So that probably makes sense. But one of the things that I find a lot of times is that people will take like a quiz they found in the magazine. Of course. They need to be on medication right away. And that's going to solve whatever issue they've self-diagnosed. And there's a lot of times an underlying issue. Yes. So in a child or an adult, a lot of times the focus becomes really the behavior that's not optimal.
1: Mm-hmm. Instead
0: of what's really going on. So, I, I so agree that really the diagnostic component of that is so important.
2: It's crucial. And if you think about it, anytime you're trying to help somebody, you know, the best way to help somebody is to truly understand why that individual is struggling. So, if you think about a friend who's having a problem, you understand your friend really well. So, you can kind of, in a sense, provide your friend with advice. What happens is that whether you're an adult or a child, you're relying on a third party who doesn't really know you, and and they have to kind of make some sort of decision in, in terms of how they can best help you or provide, you know, advice.
0: Tell us a little bit about some of the, the challenges that you see in the people that you work with, not only just the physical space challenges, but also in like time management challenges.
2: I think for me... I spend more attention now in terms of when families are seeking our help. I look at really the underlying emotional mechanism. A lot of behaviors are shaped by, you know, something emotionally that's going on one of the biggest difficulties I find for particularly students that are older or even young adults, and and certainly with adults, is the execution of tasks. And, you know, in terms of executing whatever the task is, on the surface, you know, it's, there's avoidance, you know, I don't want to do it, whatever the excuses are. You know, if you dig deeper, there's usually an emotional piece. Why are you avoiding this? You know, trying to understand, why is there a knee-jerk reaction? Like, ah, I don't want to do this. When you understand that mechanism more or, or that individual that's struggling with it, if they have more an awareness, that's the biggest step you can take. And then once you start exploring that, understanding that mechanism, you know, the next step is how do I help myself?
1: Sure. The question, does it spark joy, is a simple one, but not so easy to execute alone extend your tidying experience by joining the spark joy club our online community filled with our clients fellow listeners and kamari enthusiasts ready to support your journey
0: if you find yourself buried under clothing stuck on storage or pointing fingers at untidy housemates or family members we want to help you finish your tidying journey once and for all
1: Support the show at the Joy Riser level and receive access to our exclusive virtual community, as well as the Tidy Home Joy Journal, your number one tidying companion.
0: Visit SparkJoyPodcast.com and click on Join the Club to get started. And now back to the show.
1: We work with a lot of kids, and they often have rooms of overflowing toys and clothes and just all the things, of course. Sure. And we find that the kids' ability to decide what to keep and what to let go, every toy all of a sudden, no matter if they haven't played with it in a year, it's their favorite. Of so, course. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And you know, it, it varies from child to child, but that's pretty much uh, something that parents often struggle with. Trying to make that space where they can treat their kids' things with respect, but at the same time, you know, get things done, clear some space. Do you have any tips for them?
2: You know, on the surface, it's like, yeah, I'll just, you know, we'll get rid of some of these toys. My kid hasn't looked at these toys in years. But when it comes to executing and, you know, trying to offer some help, it's not easy. One tip that I have is I, I tell parents to recycle toys, take a bunch of their toys away and put in storage. And sometimes don't don't even tell your kids. Obviously, if your kid's asking for a toy, you don't want your kid to be in distress. But uh, when your kid's not around, just, you know, pack and put a, a bunch of their toys away so it's out of sight, out of mind. And then, you know, over time, let's say it's a month later, you unload those toys and then you take other toys that have been out. And you put them away. And then there's novelty. Kids love novelty. So, you know, sometimes it's just when you have too many options, you know, kids can kind of focus on a handful of toys. But once you kind of bring in some novelty, there's an old toy that a kid hasn't played with in years, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I forgot about this toy. So I find that can be a very helpful strategy for families.
0: I love that tip. I think that really works well. I find a lot of times, and now we're you know, approaching gift-giving season. And so I think a lot of times parents who really want to provide this magical time for their children, but then they're a little dismayed when they fill the room with toys and the kids are interested in everything for two seconds. Yep, Because children are learning how to, you know, not, not a child who has a, a serious disorder, but just, you know, all kids, all of us, our attention is so pulled in so many different directions now. I'm wondering, what advice do you have for parents of children around things like devices and screen time?
2: So there's a lot of factors. One is the age of the child. For example, for children that are 24 months and below, and parents are going to cringe when they hear this, but children should have absolutely no screen time. And you can even look at the American Pediatric Association. Don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure it's it's zero hours of screen time per week. And then I think from two to three, they say it's okay to have, you know, whatever the number is, five to 10 hours per week. And then and then when they're three and above, you know, you can have some more um, screen time. So if you look at kids 36 months and below to this day, and there was seminal research done in the 80s, and it's still, this is still holds true today, that if you look at kids across cultures, it doesn't matter where they're brought up, if you want your kid to have um, a really high Q, this is the tip. You ready?
0: What is All it? you
2: have to do is talk to your child. Huh? The number of words they hear per day, and again, I think it's something like if they hear 30,000 words per day compared to kids that have, you know, there's, there's research on 20,000 words per day and 10,000 words per day, but kids that are about 30,000 words per day score about in the in the threshold of being gifted when they're older. Talking to your kid doesn't mean you say no, 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 no. It's having a social interaction with your child. Even at birth, kids, they're processing language. They're like computer processors and they're learning early on um, how to process speech. So if you think about, it, if you go to a foreign country, you don't know the language, you can't make out what they're saying. But babies, when they're born, their brains are programmed to figure out what the heck you're saying, how to discriminate those sounds into meaning, and that's the foundation for language. So, just from the get-go, it's really important to talk to your kids and hold your kids and have that healthy attachment. What's happening now is with devices. I'm a parent. I have two kids. I have a child that's six and a child that's three. Devices make parenting easy, right? It, yeah. it really decreases your stress level as a parent because kids love technology. They're glued to it, but what's, I hate to say it, is that, you know, what you're, by kids being exposed to technology, they're not hearing that linguistic growth and the linguistic communication they they need to blossom those cognitive linguistic skills. Now you can say, well, what if a kid has an iPad, I'm talking to the kid while playing the iPad. Yeah, that is better than your kid just sitting there playing the iPad, the iPad's talking to you. But in terms of word count, the research has shown that You cannot count words that are produced by the TV, by the radio, by iPads, by your computer. It has to be words spoken from adults, ideally, like in a healthy social-emotional play context. You look at the educational system in the United States, and I haven't looked at the stats recently, but I think we're ranked like number 30th overall in terms of global education. You go to poor countries like Cuba, Cuba and other poor countries, and they're doing better academically. You, you don't need high-tech stuff to really get your kids ahead. It's Unfortunately, it's you know it's a, it's a little bit of a myth. And again, I'm not anti-technology. Technology does have its place, but it just really comes down to the basics. And if you stick to the basics, your, your kid will do well. Also, I think the
0: application of this idea to adults right because i know that there's just so many draws on our attention and i have found myself when i've been working on a big project or doing some writing that i get into this ridiculous cycle of okay i'm gonna if i write two paragraphs that i can get on twitter for a little bit mm-hmm. take this when i think about the the idea behind that it's like oh okay this is not good right but it's so hard because it's It's such a compelling source of comfort, distraction.
2: You know what it is, Karen? Technology, what it does, it triggers the dopamine systems. And it's like taking a hit of cocaine. And I'm not joking. There's research that supports that. So every time you check your phone, it's like a little bit, it's like taking a sniff of cocaine. And we're surrounded by drugs. And it's hard. You know, we're all struggling with this. If you look at the science, we, we don't really need all these technological drugs. And obviously, there are, I'm not, again, anti-technology, technology all the time, but it's something that I think, as whether you're a parent or you have a child, you have to create systems to kind of prevent the overdose of these drugs, Is it really can impact your social, emotional well-being. Kids feel isolated. I, adolescents are feeling really isolated these days, because... Adolescents—they're checking their, you know, their Twitter feeds, seeing what their friends are doing. They feel like they're being missed out. There's a lot of distractions out there, and that's, again, that leads also kind of into executive functioning with impulsivity, and particularly if you're highly impulsive, you know, you're going to want this drug all the time. Sure.
0: Earlier, you had mentioned kind of the challenges in finding a good tutor or coach for working on these issues. What do you suggest? parents and, and adults who feel that they would benefit from something like this, how can they find someone that's qualified, that will meet their needs and help get them on a good path toward, you know, improving their ability to function in the world?
2: Yeah, well, absolutely. I think it's trying to teach those to be savvy consumers. So let's say you think your child doesn't have ADHD or a learning disability or, you know, something significant that's really interfering with learning, you have a lot of options. You can go with you know, tutors or teachers, and then if your child has a significant, like let's say they are struggling with ADHD or a learning disability, then you should look for specialists. And in general, what happens in the private sector, it's, it's overwhelming. I mean, there's a lot of terms that people say, I'm this, I'm a coach, I'm this or that. But at the end of the day, if If your child is significantly struggling with something, you should find out what are they licensed or certified in your state. Um, Does the state recognize that title? And then, you know, if they are licensed or certified, it should be an area of expertise that's within their license or, or certification. So, for example, in tutoring, my grandma could be a tutor. She can say, I'm an ADHD tutor. I'm an ADHD coach. In New York State, if you knocked on New York State's door and you said, hey, I'm, I'm working with, um, you know, Shirley, Craig's grandmother, and she's an ADHD coach, New York State would say there's no such profession as an ADHD. We don't recognize that. What is she licensed or certified in? So those are the questions you should really ask.
0: Absolutely. I think that what you just mentioned was really important because there's this whole idea that I had never known before that coaching is so unregulated. I had no idea.
2: And then I'm not saying like there could be ADHD, say coaches, executive functioning coaches that are licensed in special education or speech language pathology or in psychology. So, you know, you you look under the hood and they could be absolutely legit, but a lot of parents don't take that step.
1: That's so helpful. I mean, just like the challenge, like tidying up. Sometimes you know what the issue is, but you just don't know where to start in terms of what direction to go in terms of understanding what professionals are out there and how they're qualified or maybe not so qualified. So that's very helpful. And before we let you go, Craig, we also want to ask you what your favorite tidying tip is for people who are managing with an attention disorder.
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I find, you know, if you have, let's say, pen and pencils, and they're scattered throughout your home, you know, you should create, you know, some sort of drawer where your pencils and pens live. For me, that once you find that all objects should have a place to live, it creates organizational systems and it creates predictability. And then when there's predictability, you know, when we're all so busy during transitions, you know where things should be. And then if you live, you have a family and you'll agree upon like, hey, this is the home for... You know, printing paper. This is the home for, you know, where we're all going to keep all of our shoes. And I think once you have kind of a, an agreement within a family, it, things just tend to run more smoothly.
1: A place for everything and everything in its place. Yes. That's out of the Marie Kondo handbook.
2: Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> That's funny.
1: And at this very moment in time, what sparks the most joy in your life, Craig?
2: Yeah. So, I think turning 40 was very significant. And at this point in my life, what I've noticed sparks the most joy tends to be things that are very simplistic in life. And on top of that, I'm really since I live in, in New York City, and we have four seasons, is just really enjoying um those simplistic things that each season has to offer. So now we're, you know, we're starting fall. So I was just this weekend, I was upstate. You know, the apple cider donuts are now out. Nice. And Honey crisp apples are back. And so, you know, those simple things, you know, do spark a lot of joy. And I noticed that particularly when it's seasonal, I even enjoyed it even more. So I, I look forward to those seasonal moments.
0: That sounds great. You've made me hungry for cider donuts. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, do you have any parting words of wisdom for those who might be working toward increasing their functionality and time management.
2: Yeah, so I'm not going to lie. So I I cheat a little bit and I I, I wanted to find a really nice quote. So something that I do on the side, actually I've been practicing for the last three years, I do jujitsu. I found this quote that Madonna said, it actually relates to to jujitsu and I think it also relates to when you're empowered to create change. So what Madonna once said, she said, no matter who you are, No matter what you did, no matter where you've come from, you can always change, become a better version of yourself. And during Jiu-Jitsu, the martial arts, there's a lot of struggle. I mean, when I started, I I had no background in martial arts. I was terrible. And you kind of have to leave your ego at the door. But, you know, you just tell yourself, just show up, just do it. And over time, again, you know, create change. It's not like, you know, you're going to try something and it's all of a sudden you get a quick fix. that That's not true change. True change happens over time. And it's not something that you say, hey, you know, I did this all this week and now all of a sudden I'm a lot better. It's just something that you have to work at daily. And um, if you journal, which is also a helpful tip, let's say you're working on a goal and you start today, I'm working on this guaranteed if you work on that goal every day and you journal about it two, three months from now, you're going to go back and like, wow, I I really have made a lot of improvement. It may not feel like you've made a lot of improvement, but if you go back and you look from where you started, there's a whole process with ups and downs. Times you are like, I'm going to give up, but guaranteed if you persevere and stick with it, you will become a better version of yourself.
0: Wow, that was a great thought, and we always love a good Madonna quote. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs>
0: well, Craig, thank you so much for being thank here.
2: Thank you so much, Karen and Christelle. are yeah. awesome.
0: To learn more about Temba Tutors, you can find them at com. On their website, you can actually set up a free call to discuss your concerns and see how
1: Temba Tutors could help you reach your full potential. Exclusively for SparkJoy listeners, Craig has compiled some awesome productivity and organizational apps for students and adults. Head over to our show notes for details. So now we want to hear from you. Tell us your burning tidying questions or share stories about how Kanari has impacted your life. Head
0: over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and review the show, which helps us reach others along their tidying journeys.
1: To extend your tidying experience, you can join the Spark Joy Club. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click join the
0: club to become a member of the Spark Joy community or join us on Facebook, Instagram, and
1: Twitter. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope your day sparks joy.
0: Thank you for listening to Spark Joy with your hosts, Kristen Ivey of For the Love of Tidy in Chicago and Karen Sochi of The Serene Home in New York City. Spark Joy, the podcast, is not endorsed by or affiliated with Kamari Media, Inc. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the co hosts and guests alone and do not represent the corporate position of Kamari Media, Inc. or the Kamari consultant community.